Hello and welcome to the first No Man's Land podcast. I'm here with Steve O'Neill and Akash Pound. Uh, Steve, could you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Martin. Uh, yeah, my name's Steve O'Neill. Uh, I used to be uh, deputy head of policy at the Liberal Democrats, which is where my interest in centrist politics comes in, and um, and want to start the blog No Man's Land. Great. Thank you, Akash. Hi there, Martin. Yeah, so my name is Akash Brown. I work at the Institute for Government, um, and I work on research relating to lots of stuff to do with British government and the constitution, and uh, that inevitably means quite a lot of Brexit thinking over the past three years or so. Mm. Right, thank you very much. Uh, Come to you first, Akash. So can you just give us uh, an overview of where we are to start off with both within British politics and the wider context of uh, the European situation as we sit here in the aftermath of the European parliamentary elections? I'll do my best. It's a pretty big question to start with. Um, So, well, of course, we just had the European Parliament election results uh, come in only only yesterday, uh, yesterday overnight. Uh, at the time of recording, so I think the dust is still settling a bit, you could say, and people are still sort of crunching the numbers and and thinking through the exact ramifications, but um, I think it's clear that something quite big happened. Mm. Um, I mean, it is easy to get carried away sometimes with these things, you know, turnout in European Parliament elections is is always low, there's always an element of of a protest vote, and smaller parties do often do, you know, disproportionately well. Um, compared to general elections, elections that normally are the ones that actually matter. But this time feels like something quite major changed. I mean, we've never seen a party come from nowhere, you know, only formed three months ago, Nigel Farage's Brexit party, to to top the poll, do so pretty convincingly, to do so in nine out of 12 regions of, of the UK, including pretty much everywhere in England outside of London. Um, that's a big deal. You know, we've never seen the Conservatives and Labour Party combined get such a you know minuscule share of the votes. Conservatives at nine percent. I mean, these are just astonishing figures, aren't they? Um, and you know, we don't know at this point whether this is a a permanent you know fragmentation of our party system and how much of this will carry forward into if there is a general election at some point. Well, there will be one at some point, <laughs> but if there's one at some point uh, soon, which is definitely possible, you know, we don't know what will happen, but um, it feels to me, I don't know what you guys think, that, um, you know, this genie is not going to be put back in the mm. bottle. We're not going to go back to business as usual, stable mm. Labour and Conservative majority governments taking turns with, yeah, maybe a sort of sensible mm. Lib Dem party in the, in the middle. Hmm. I mean, that's uh, an interesting question to me, Steve. The Brexit Party has topped the poll in in the UK, but the Lib Dems have come second. So, should this be seen as um, like a really good result for the main centrist party um, that the Lib Dems have done so well, or is it a poor result for the centre, the political centre, because it appears that the electorate are either split or in no mood for compromise or a bit of both. It's basically on one side it's no deal, on the other side it's revoke and remain. Is there a centre? How well has the centre done in this? I mean it's both the things you mentioned uh, and, and what you say is right. So it's, it's great to see the Lib Dems back, it's great to finally have a party 
um, generally perceived in between the two other big parties to give them some scrutiny from the centre. Everything um, the last few years has seemed to pull the two parties to the extremes. Um, so it's great from that point of view. But as, as you allude to, the, the difficult thing is, is there a centre anymore? Because on the big issue of the day, the Lib Dems are on one of the polls, which is the revoke Remain position hmm. against the Brexit party, which was on the other poll, hmm. for the, no, the hard no-deal position. Um, so there is no compromise position, really. Hmm. There was a fudge of it with Labour, you could argue, but a very bad fudge. The Tories are pretty hard Brexit. There's no compromise, and it's a little bit uneasy that it seems very, a very small number of people in the public are looking for that option. Hmm. It, it strikes me somewhat as something of a contradiction that looking as I was ahead of the elections for a, for a moderate party. Now, we haven't defined what we mean by sort of centrism and the political centre as a moderate option. The Conservatives seem to me to be, the, in some ways, the most moderate position on Brexit in that they are not no deal and they're not revoke and remain. So have we ended up in the position where the Conservatives are the, the centrists in the sense of being the most moderate? Yeah, I mean, this is, 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 these are fascinating questions. It really gets to the heart of I think, you know, this podcast is about centrism, well, what, what do we mean by that? Because um, we traditionally have a left-right spectrum, and then you have parties um, in the middle of that spectrum, mm. which obviously has been Liberal Democrats as the main one in, in recent uh, decades, um, and it's been quite easy to pinpoint, you know, where the centre is. I mean, there's always been a sort of, you know, liberal authoritarian dimension as well, but it's left-right politics, traditional, you know, distributive politics that has always dominated. But as you say, you know, if we're now in a position where the dominant issue dimension is something different, whether, you know, whether you want to just call it leave remain, or actually does that tap into something deeper, you know, about, well cosmopolitan versus communitarian values is one way to look at it. Um, in that world, yeah, who are the centrists mm. for exactly the reason you say? I mean, you could equally argue, I think, Martin, that that Labour, in a way, is, is, is a sort of centrist mm. party on this issue of Brexit, and they obviously tried to sit on the fence and kind of got split in two as a result. Mm. Yeah. No, it's... it's I mean, this is the um, the unusual thing. So I wrote a piece for the blog recently uh, outlining that in the upcoming, then upcoming European elections, I felt like I, I had no one to, to vote for automatically. Um, and my, my own position on this is that in the, uh, the aftermath of the European Union membership referendum of 2016, that was the largest direct individual mandate for anything that's ever happened in British politics. I'm a Democrat and I believe the result has to be respected and it just struck me particularly then that so few, now I personally don't count Labour's position as um, either moderate or sort of centrist because I think they hold a number of contradictory positions, yeah, and they will try. And it's changing as we speak. Exactly. Well, it just in the aftermath of the results, they're yeah. obviously shifting the line on a people's vote. Well, the thing is that one of the few consistencies within Labour's position has been the inconsistency of one person will say one thing, 
as soon as that interview is finished, another person will come out and contradict them and say, but, and actually, so Labour's position to me is not a position, it is a number of contradictory positions that whichever position someone has just taken, someone else will then contradict. Usually a front bencher will make a claim or movement in favour of a second, uh, a confirmatory ballot, a rerun of the second, you know, people's vote, whatever we want to call it. At which point someone from the leader's office will say, no, actually we're not going to have a, we're not going to do that. And the thing that you just said worked very well for the Guardian, but actually this line we're going to try to push in the, in the north. So that's the, the very interesting question, I think, in this podcast is what is the centre and... Yeah. Um, Okay, so, so, so sorry, Steve. Someone um, said to, said to me once, and it really stuck with me, and I can't remember who for the life of me, but they said centrism is a disposition, not an ideology, mm. and that and that I think says quite a bit to this conversation because actually, if it is just a sort of uh, disposition to compromise, to triangulate, then you're going to find yourself in between the two poles mm. or whatever poles there are to debate. Um, the thing is, the people that have been centrist traditionally in Britain over the last few years in the Lib Dems, and the Lib Dems are, as I would know, like a, a, a liberal party, not like a moderate party. Mm. What makes Lib a Dems large L liberal a party. large L liberal party exactly? So, on issues like internationalism in Europe, they're not in the in the sort of moderate compromise centre. Actually, they have very strong views about that. On economic issues, the kind of bread and butter things that Akash was talking about, they were more in the middle of that poll. And if that poll shifted, they actually become one of the sort of uh, you know more extreme versions uh, mm. in in the debate. So um, I think that is what makes this question so hard. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you just said. <laughs> um, writing notes in preparation for this discussion, before I actually wrote down the words ideological centrism or dispositional centrism. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe someone that? said it to me once before. I don't think it was me who said it to you. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what I was thinking about. I mean, I think yeah. There's something. Uh, is there something? Maybe I'll put it as a question about centrism as less about the ideas mm. and more about the way of doing politics mm. um, you know that, uh, that does <laughs> seem to be missing at the moment mm. a search for common ground a search for compromise a willingness to work across party lines you know to reach out to the two trenches on either side of the of, of the no man's land, shall we say, mm. um, that isn't therefore necessarily defined by the, the specific issues mm. on the agenda at the moment. I mean, is that part of our definition? Should it be? I think we need I to. Con- so. I think we need to consider it because, to my mind, the contrast between the "I agree with Nick" TV debates mm. when the so, uh, the Conservative and Labour leaders, Cameron and Brown, were hugging the centrist close. You know, well, he's so reason. And I remember was when Charlie Kennedy was the uh, Lib Dem leader, and I thought he just seems like such a reasonable man. Mm. But now, and now, the, the reasons behind this are fascinating. But why have we got away from that feeling that we can, or, or on each side, can? come to terms with, can make peace with, does not look or feel very different from the other main players. Whereas now it feels like going back to, I mean, obviously we saw it around Brexit and with UKIP, that 
you you know it's us against them it's you know you're with me or against me you are the enemy you are the elite the bizarre genuinely bizarre um, spectacle of conservative party cabinet members you know members of parliament who are in the the cabinet of the conservative party uh, decrying the their op opponents for being in the elite not and is is that how we've got to be here that people don't feel like the people on the other side of the aisle on the other trench they don't look or sound or feel like them anymore have we gone from playing football in no man's land at, at christmas to you know the last people to be firing at each other as toward as the um, the armistice approach <laughs> yeah that's 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 a good way of putting it i mean i think there's something, isn't there, about a referendum, mm. any referendum, mm. but this one obviously more than what most, that is just naturally polarising. They mm. are binary questions. Mm. And that, you know, I don't, the UK is not very used to using mm. referendums for, to, to settle big, big questions. And we have obviously a tradition of representative democracy and parliament resolving these things and probably ending up with something a bit more that might look like a fudge, but actually might be a compromise that can can sort of earn, if not mm. the the enthusiasm, but at least the support, the acceptance. tolerance of yeah of, of a decent number of people. But a referendum, no, bang, you pick your side, you pick your tribe almost. Mm. I mean, that's that's definitely part of the story, isn't mm. it? But I suppose there's a question about chicken and egg, isn't there? Because mm. why did we end up having the referendum in the first place? I mean, there was obviously uh, a surge of, mm. of, of support for UKIP and that tapped into something changing in terms mm. of yeah, attitudes to politics, populism if you want to put it that way, shifting mm. identity patterns as well. Mm. I mean mm. English, English nationalism mm. is often seen as a sort of, uh, you know, sort of a, a channel for your mm. scepticism. Um, there's lots of academic research on mm. that of course. Yeah. Well, I find that odd, and I think back to before the referendum, or certainly to like a year or two before the referendum, I saw very little of this coming, other than UKIP having what was only sort of a still relatively fairly small vote share. I didn't really predict that the EU was a big question. We looked at polls that, that said, what to people, what do you care about the most? It was things like the economy, the deficit, the NHS. Immigration. Immigration was climbing and actually yeah. up at the top, and that might have been part of it. But it, it seems to have been about a lot more now. Mm. Um, and the only thing I can think of is that somehow the coalitions within the main parties um, hid that until recently, and perhaps the, the binary question seems to have split them both, the main parties. And maybe somehow that has exposed these issues that were there. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I was working in politics. I was completely blind to some of this. Mm. I suppose to to move on slightly to the the implications of this in electoral terms. So, you you mentioned uh, English nationalism and its association with Euroscepticism. What we've seen in the European elections is the Europe-wide, there's been a bit of a reduction for the role of the centre. Uh, definitely, some sort of some people say it's a surge. Some people say it's a trickle. But there's an awful lot more populists and nationalists represented in the European Parliament than there was in the past. So, 
how what position are we now in across Europe, given the caveats about it's a not particularly sort of uh, high status election and people will lend their vote out to people they never think of or they won't turn out and vote at all. What is the sort of position and situation? I know it's too early to tell, but yeah, where are we at the moment? Well, I'm not... I can't profess to be an, an expert on 27 yeah. <laughs> national political systems. I mean, when you look at the overall figures across the, the EU... Um, I mean, I don't think it's so clear-cut that this was a big sort of breakthrough moment mm. for, say, the populist right mm. um, compared to five years ago. There doesn't seem to have been a big increase um, for that grouping or those groupings in mm. sort of European Parliament terms. I mean, I think, yeah, if you compare back to sort of maybe 10, 20 years ago, then you can definitely see a shift. Mm. I mean, sure, like who's the lead party in France? Marine Le Pen, whatever their party is called now, the mm, National, National Rally. Rally. National right, Rally. and obviously now we had UKIP five years ago, now we've got Brexit Party as mm. the biggest party here. Um, and there's other places like Poland and Hungary as mm. well, where sort of bright populist movements, indeed, certainly Italy. So yeah, there's some places where that's true. Other places... Um, the Greens have done very well, haven't they? Germany, the German Greens mm. did very well. In Spain, the sort of more traditional centre-left did mm. quite well. Netherlands, I think it was more consolidation for the mm. traditional parties. So I think, um, yeah, again, you know, people will be sort of crunching these figures. Mm. Maybe we should look into them a bit more. But mm. it's, it's definitely a mixed picture, at least comparing with five years ago, mm. to sort of identify very clear trends. Mm. Um, but there's been something of a change over, yeah, over the past sort of decade or two, that's for sure. Mm. And I, I suppose, Steve, what do you think about the the churn? So all of these parties that have done well recently, whether that's parties that have come from nowhere, like the Brexit Party or uh, some of the, the populists, but where is a lot of that support coming from? Um... A few go back a few years, and I think people didn't change their vote very much. Mm. And you, you you hold in certain bits of in certain communities quite deep support for um, certain parties, and I think that's. I feel in the UK is quite established, but it seems like across Europe, it's narrowed a bit in the sense that um, people are more likely to switch who they vote for now. Um, and so you've seen in the recent European elections, like in the UK, Green Party's doing very well. Um, uh, in Europe, as we discussed, Lib Dems did very well um, as a, a brand new Brexit party, and I think that's happening. That's happening more and more. So it's it's, it's again, it's, it's a case of more likely to get these kind of polarizations and divisions because people move around more. Mm. Yeah, it certainly seems to have been a a shifting of the identity that um, a lot of people talk about. The Labour's vote was made up largely of the the heavy industries and the sort of non-conformists, you know, people argue that the British Labour Party is more about Methodism than Marxism, which I personally think there really is something in that. Mm. And it certainly seems that that um, deeply felt loyalty and identity as part of a political party mm. is very much being eroded in the political support is much more of a transactional relationship now yeah. but the issue of identity has certainly not gone away and 
um, certainly that you alluded to earlier with the, um, the internationalist versus nationalist is perhaps a too loaded a term but um, you were talked earlier about English nationalism so is English nationalism inherently different from the centre away from the centre is it exclusionary um, what role has it played in the sort of position that we're in now I think English nationalism specifically is quite it's, it's, it's quite ill-defined as a as a political force. I mean, it's never had a, a, a there's never been a, an explicit English nationalist political party, um, and you know some would say that that's the problem that there is this sort of latent dissatisfaction among um, a lot of people who see identify as English as their you know maybe one of their, their, their primary identity, mm. um, but feel ignored, ignored by Westminster, ignored by a you know a UK that's recognised Scotland mm. and Wales and Northern Ireland as distinct nations with their own mm. institutions and so on, um, and yeah, originally UKIP and then Brexit, Euroscepticism that mm. cause um, has managed to channel um, that underlying, underlying English um, mm. dissatisfaction. I mean, I was looking at some, some figures actually before, so um, this is from the, the very fine book published last year called Governing England, <laughs> which I and Martin were involved in, you might want to take a look, look at, but a chapter by Robert Ford and Maria Sobolewska. Um, looking at yeah this association between support for UKIP and English identity and, and, and in June um, 2016 they had the figures at the time of the referendum of course they showed that people who felt very strongly English um, well over 20% of them supported UKIP at that point obviously a lot more than that would have voted for leaving the referendum among people who had very weak or no English identities, are people who said they were British primarily or something else, um, only around 7% voted UKIP. So I think there's quite clear evidence of that, that association mm. there. It's interesting, it's certainly shaping British politics in a way that we never uh, expected in the very sort of re recent past. So let's move on to, to British politics and to Steve. Uh, last week, as we speak, the Prime Minister announced that she will be um, she will be resigning in the near future. I've never known a resignation where you say that you will be resigning in the future. <laughs> it is a strange one. Isn't it, it's it? A very I strange, don't quite understand. Very British. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, from the point of view of the political centre, mm -hmm. how does the contest for the Conservative leadership look? How would you, uh, the, the sort of political centre uh, view this other than with dread, which would perhaps be the easy answer? I think with dread is the easy answer. Um, the one word answer I was going to give you is terrible. Um, but actually I think it's a little bit harder than that. So we're really talking about on the issue of Brexit, given what we just discussed about the, uh, the Brexit party pulling voters away from the Tories, it, it seems that almost every Tory leader will have to tack to the right on that tack towards no deal hmm. and that seems to be the overarching narrative and most of those uh, in the contest uh, not all but most are are making noises in that direction hmm. certainly the front runners seem to be what I'd say uh, about it being harder is that we actually don't know an awful lot about where Tories would go other than Brexit and I think they've got a problem just like 
um, I think everyone on the left right now has in in they don't really know what they're standing for anymore. So, to, for example, cut um, some colour. Theresa May tacked uh, economic to the left. She had an industrial strategy. She was more interventionist than in the state, um, but she was talking about citizens of nowhere uh, and being quite authoritarian and, and, and at times anti-immigrants. People would say. Um, obviously, you've got the other faction of the Tory party, which some obsession with people like Philip Hammond in terms of wanting to be um, uh, more economically liberal. He um, I don't know what words he used, but he talked to, he, he implied the UK could become like a sort of Singapore on Thames, uh, a low tax, kind of low regulation base. Um, and I think we might see, or one of the interesting things we might see out of this contest, we might see some people actually say what they're for other than Brexit, which I'm, um, I'd welcome. Um, mm-hmm. Many quarters talk about anything other than Brexit. Um, but it's hard to tell on other issues how bad this is a political centre right mm. now. Mm. We've seen a little bit of it already, I think. You know, the, the, I mean, there's how many candidates are there now? Ten. Uh, I mean, it's double figures, yeah. Um, but so, so I think you've already seen some of them try and differentiate themselves on things other than Brexit. I mean, Rob was talking about Dominic. Rob was talking about five p tax mm. on basic rate of income, yeah. income tax. Mm. Obviously. Not clear. Yeah. That's affordable, but you know, as, yeah. as a kind of pitch for yeah. a sort of economic right, Thatcherite, mm. uh, mm. you might mm. say, um, electorate. Mm. You know, that, that was quite a clear signal. Mm. Yeah. So, the it seems to me that in the last couple of days, as we speak, certain candidates, such as Michael Gove, has come out against a no deal let's say a no deal as first option if I'm going to be cautious with my words and the likes of uh, Jeremy Hunt has also spoken about the importance of getting a deal mm-hmm. is the centre ground on in terms of Brexit in terms of the Tory leadership race has deal or no deal now become the centre ground and is that not a catastrophic failure of the the political centre to have attempted to reach some sort of agreement or compromise on Brexit and that you now have um, this, basically the polarisation between no deal and revoke. So um, given that that does seem to be the centre ground, how have we got to a situation where um, it seems a lot of people say that no deal would be a catastrophe. How have we got to a situation where that's one side of the the debate around the centre ground? Well, I think your characterisation is right. If you think back to, I think I'm going to credit call the Lancaster House speech mm-hmm. Theresa May made. That's when she said initially we're going to leave the customer union single market. That was quite a big shock because most of us thought, well, that's a really hard Brexit. That was doing a trade deal and having a withdrawal agreement. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about crashing out with none of those things as the <coughs> as the as the what seems like the default option in the Tory party debate, and so you're absolutely right. The centre's tentacle on Brexit seems to have shifted in that party mm. way right. Mm. But I mean, isn't it a um, a failure of the kind of political dialogue and institutions that we used to take for granted a bit that that we used to be able to find a fudge, a compromise, a moderate position between the two extremes, but given that one side has just refused to engage with the debate at all, we've defaulted to um, an extreme as a moderate position. 
Well, I think we, there's still there's still some uh, you know quite a lot of the game left to be played. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I mean there's yeah there's a, there's a whole range of contenders. I mean you do have uh, as as you said Jeremy Hunt, um, you know taking what sounds a bit more like a, a, a moderate line at least yeah ruling out or trying to rule out mm. that deal that's true as an aside it's a shame I don't think Liam Fox is standing this time because otherwise we could have had some good fox hunts headlines yeah, <laughs> the two of them were like <laughs> ended up in the final two anyway that aside <laughs> um, so I think yeah on your question I mean I think we might people might end up looking back at the indicative votes in uh, the second round of indicative votes in particular in April um, as a missed opportunity. I mean, we'll see. As I say, we don't really know how it will play out. But, you know, the Commons came very close to voting for Customs Union. Three votes, I think, there was in it in the end. Mm -hmm. Even And then the even softer, if you want to put it in those terms, Common Market 2.0 um, model pushed by or proposed by Nick Bowles, who obviously then left the Conservatives. Um, that came within 20 or so votes. Um, of course, the cabinet wasn't voting in those in those votes. It has to be recognised. But nonetheless, there were a lot of Remain MPs who opposed those and voted, as I recall, voted only for um, a second referendum. Mm -hmm. um, had they been willing to um, to compromise, then you know the Commons could have sent a pretty powerful signal at that point that it was yeah it was happy to to go for a soft Brexit. You know, then they still would have had to negotiate that, renegotiate the deal with the, with the EU and so on. It wasn't, a, it wasn't all plain sailing from there, but that could have been a moment when things change. Mm. Mm. Discuss. Mm. <laughs> so we, we have to at least discuss the, uh, the electorate in the upcoming leadership bout. So the Conservative Party membership none of us are Conservative Party members so we have limit to our knowledge and experience in this area but the Conservative Party membership are characterised as um, old uh, very white very right wing the polling says that there's something like twice as supportive as an, of a no deal outcome as the public as a whole is there a chance that they might surprise us as they did when they picked David Cameron over David Davis? And um, what can we expect if we can expect anything at this point from from the kind of membership that are going to be this electorate? I'm shooting in the dark on this one. I've got to be honest. But yeah, I mean, I've seen the polling same as you that I think. 65% I think am I making up that figure of, of Conservative members in one recent poll said their favourite outcome was no deal Brexit hmm. um, so based on that and not a huge amount of, of, of other detailed information of debate within the Conservative Party hmm. um, you'd have to think that a no dealer um, whether hmm. it's Rob or whether Boris Johnson classifies as a no deal hmm. Brexiteer, I It'd assume he does. I mean, he can, of course, slightly <laughs> keep his options open sometimes, but you know, you'd have to think one of those would be the favourites, hmm. would be my reading of it. So, the, um, the subject of the composition of a membership 
is very much a live issue given the current state of the Labour Party. So is there a, a case for um, moderates seeking to join, in this case, the Conservative Party, but let's stick with the Labour Party as well, um, to try to change, actively try to change the electorate of the two main parties? Also known as doing a momentum. Uh, doing a momentum. We used to call it entryism, but yes, doing a momentum. So the first time I read about this idea was in Nick Clegg's book a couple of years ago, How to Stop Brexit. And quite amazingly for an ex-leader of Lib Dems, he said the way to stop Brexit is to join Labour and join the Tories and vote for leaders who are pro a people's vote or um, pro a soft Brexit. Um, and when you look at the Tories in particular, I think their membership is about 160,000, um, which is vanishingly small uh, compared to, say, Labour, for example, I think about half a million now. The vote, the vote you would buy for, I think it's 25 quid, hmm. you can make an argument that, that the influence you would have, 160,000 versus what you'd have a, a general election or, or similar, is, is huge in that case. It wouldn't take that many thousand people to join the Tories mm. to change the leadership election quite significantly, mm. uh, as happened with Labour for the second leadership election. So um, there's, a case, there, there's, there's definitely a case for it. I, it is quite a hard thing to do, I think, uh, in the current political environment, because um, to certainly someone like London, a very, um, some would say, metropolitan liberal sort of place, um, uh, Tory is more a term of abuse than it is a description of a political party. Um, so for people to do that and, and, and um, imply that might be the political things, I think it's difficult, but um, uh, there's definitely a case for it. Mm. Now, on the subject of um, people joining or leaving one party to join another, I think it shows quite how successful Change UK, the independent group, have been that we've discussed politics for half an hour and have yet to even <laughs> touch on them. Yeah. So, is this just a case that the Change UK, let's call them Change UK, that's I think the easiest version of their names, is it the case that they had the right people doing the right thing at the wrong time given the Lib Dem surge in the local elections in large part I suspect as a none of a none of the above vote. Yeah. I think I don't know if I have the answer to that question. I, I was thinking about this before and I mean clearly they've clearly they failed. Yeah. <laughs> Whether there's any future for them or not we shall see. Um, but you know when they were formed there was a moment when I think credible people, uh, you know, analysts, polling analysts and so on were, were speculating that they and the Brexit party may be the two, the, the two parties that, that top the polls in the Euros and what do they get in the end, 3% or something? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's sort of three ways you could look at it. I mean, were they, were they unlucky? with the timing of the elections happening and the Lib Dems unexpectedly surged, as you say. Um, did they screw up? <laughs> mm -hmm. And obviously they did do some things quite badly. I mean, their name wasn't great, they changed yeah. it, their branding was poor. The comparison with the, with, with the Brexit party yeah, is really clear. Exactly, yeah. But they're all, or option three, where they kind of structurally doomed, like was there just no space for them, shall we mm. say, in the political landscape? 
um, and that you know it was just a fundamental miscalculation. Whereas, yeah, I mean Brexit, the Brexit party is is the the obvious uh, comparator on the other side of it. Um, and yeah, they definitely get, got the basics right. Um, they also had a well-known charismatic mm. leader. He's not everyone's cup of tea, but he's obviously less toxic out there in the country than you know people in the Westminster bubble would would think or recognise. Um, you know, the the Change UK uh, group had some decent, you know, mm. well-known names mm. in Westminster, but no grand national figures, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, and then the Brexit Party. Obviously, there was, you know, there was a big gap for them to fill on on the big issue of the day. And in mm. the end, Change UK were just crowded out by by various other parties, Lib Dems and Greens in England. But then you've got SNP and Plaid, obviously, as well, all kind of pushing a similar line. And what else did Change UK have other than mm. second referendum? I think I think you get to the core of it because I don't know if you remember when Change UK launched. They weren't launching as a stop Brexit rebellion. They were launching as a rebellion against um, anti-Semitism in Labour, what they, they considered to be a very hostile environment in a broader sense. Um, equally, when the I think it was three Tory MPs joined, they talked about entryism, hard right, Islamophobia, those kind of things. And it was about something different, a new way of doing politics, whatever the phraseology was. A few weeks later, they decided that they were the anti-Brexit party. And... I wonder there was a lack of clarity there about what are they really doing this for. Because if they were going to be anti-Brexit party, they may as well have, and this is in hindsight now, they may as well have either collaborated with the Lib Dems and the Greens, tried to create a Remain sort of coalition um, officially to, to counter Farage, maybe deny him their headlines yesterday. Um, yeah, but instead, of course, I mean, there was that leaked memo from them, wasn't there? Yeah. Where it was clear their strategy and their you know, slightly grandiose uh, mm. <laughs> aspirations was that they would replace the Lib Dems and steal away their funders and their yeah. support base mm. and um, so yeah, they weren't going into it on the basis of we'll collaborate with, with like-minded groups. But, mm. but then six weeks ago that wasn't by any means an outlandish proposition the Lib Dems were tanking you know, most people couldn't have Named the leader of the Lib Dems if they themselves were long-standing Lib Dem supporters, and it seems to me that rather than any particular um, strategic genius on behalf of on the part of the Lib Dems, that they just happened to be in the right place at the right time, which was not in the Labour Party or the Conservative Party at a time when the vast majority of the of England was holding local elections when a lot of people wanted to kick two established parties. Yeah, and Change UK weren't ready, they weren't mm. a party really even yeah. at that point, so they couldn't stand in those elections. Yeah. But I think it's it's very interesting to me that they don't seem to have been clear in their own minds what they're for, mm. what is the point of the independent group, then change UK, then change UK, the independent yeah. group. I think they've got two fundamental sort of strategic aims that are mm. getting a bit confused between yeah. are you a stop Brexit party or are you change all of politics party? Yeah. I think you can do one or the other, at least in the short term, but doing both has meant they've 
yeah. they've you know they've done nothing. I mean, well, yeah. we say that, but maybe Luciana Berg is getting less anti-Semitic abuse these days. Uh, so. I, I certainly hope so. Mm. I think the other thing to say is that their strategy was based on the Lib Dem brand being irrevocably broken, and two weeks later, after they invented that strategy, the brand has turned out to be fixed, mm. or at least in large part compared to what we've seen in recent years, people have forgiven the Lib Dems, mm. um, and so maybe they were a little unlucky in the that most people would have thought there's a fair chance that is the case only a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and the direction we've seen has kind of reversed that narrative completely. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting yeah. point. Yeah, the detoxification of the Lib Dems is, you know, it's, 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 quite, it's quite a story really, isn't it? Yeah. I, think. I mean, mm-hmm. again, we'll see if it carries through to a general, but the fact that so many people, I think from the, you know, what, what analysis has been, people, a lot of people from who were previously voting Labour, um, ha- are willing again mm. after years of, of mm. in many cases, you know, despising the Lib Dems yeah. as kind of lackeys of the Conservatives, mm. are willing to look at and consider the Lib Dems again. I mean, I think that's quite a big deal. Even if they don't all remain as yeah. consistent Lib Dem voters, the fact that they've done it this time or in the locals, mm. I think that shows that something's changed. I suppose there's one interesting thing for a lot of Labour people it won't just be lackeys of the Conservative government it's certainly someone I spoke to uh, about this said it's a matter of uh, just good old fashioned tribalism you know we stand against the Lib Dems they are the um, they are the enemy here they're often saying they're winning here but in this case they are the enemy in that particular mm-hmm. place. Akash. Yeah, I thought, yeah, what you were saying just now, Martin, about um, well, tribalism and, uh, and I suppose you know, people just voting the way they've always voted. There, there was an interesting polling you might have seen from Lord Ashcroft that just came out, I think, today on why people voted for the party they voted for in the European election and it did, I mean obviously this is of a relatively small pool now, but of those who voted Labour, the number one reason was simply I always vote for that party so that's who they've, you know the 14% or whatever it was who who stuck with them um, on a low turnout as well, you know, but that's who it was the hardcore who, that's all they do ditto the Conservatives who obviously got even Mm. less, that was the number one reason, whereas Lib Dems number one reason, they had the best policy on Brexit Um, Brexit party number one reason, interestingly number one, I wanted to show my dissatisfaction with UK government position on Brexit, only number two was they had the best policy on Brexit but um, yeah, there's some interesting data in that poll. For That's sure. fascinating. Mm. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Akash. Thank you. That's been fascinating. Thank you very much uh, for listening. I hope you have enjoyed it. Please, if you have, leave us uh, some feedback, some comments, and share our podcasts, our blogs, and anything else that we do as far and wide as possible because we would like the political centre to become uh, reawakened, re established as the axis around which uh, politics works and not marginalised. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.